Confluence Radio is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. My Indian name is Lamush, named after my great-grandmother Flora, and my English name is Linda, so I'm here to talk to you today. Hello, welcome to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. When Linda Mianis was five years old, someone wrote a book about her. It was a children's book called Linda's Indian Home, and it was all about her life growing up near Celilo Falls on the Columbia River, a mighty fishery that was later flooded by the construction of the Dalles Dam. Today, Linda is an elder with the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, and she's a confluence educator, sharing her culture, her knowledge of traditional first foods, and her story with schoolchildren. Linda is also now an author. With support from Confluence, she has written her own book in her own words. It's called My Name is Lamush, which is her Indian name. It's intended for young readers to learn more about Native American history, and it is a reminder that indigenous people continue to maintain a cultural connection to the land and river that gave them their identity in the first place. My Name is Lamush includes fact boxes that provides historical, cultural, and environmental context for Linda's personal story. The book was co-published by Oregon State University Press and Confluence. In today's episode, we'll hear from Linda Mianis and her friend and Portland State University historian, Katie Barber. Our interviewer is Confluence digital content manager, Lily Hart, who coordinated the book project. We'll begin by hearing Linda tell us why she wanted to write this book. I just felt it was important to write one because of the two books that were written about me. And I figured since I'm an adult now, I figured that I might as well share my story of how my life was from Linda's Indian home and come to our salmon piece. I thought, well, why not write one? And plus having other uh, support groups like Confluence and Katie and my family and thought about the elder Virginia Beaver. Yeah, I thought if she could write one, I thought I might as well. Because I thought about writing one since school, you know, and I just thought I wanted to share what it was for us and how important it is for us, even though people don't think it is, you know. And I just thought, well, I'm glad that I that I that we did write this, you know, because now I got so many compliments, and all the elders wanted to get a book. You're listening to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. In today's episode, Warm Springs and Celilo elder Linda Mianis talks about her new book, My Name is Lamush. Linda had support for the book project from Dr. Katie Barber, a professor of history at Portland State University. My name is Katie Barber. I'm a professor of history at Portland State University. 
I first met Linda when she walked into my Oregon history class. I don't remember what year it was, but you know, it's been what, 12 or 13 years probably since that happened. So Oregon history is one of my favorite classes to teach. It has a lot of students in it, but she really stood out. She made me a little bit nervous because I talked about Celilo Falls and the inundation of Celilo Falls by the Dallas Dam in the class. And I usually did it around the anniversary of the inundation. It was just the way that the term laid out and where the where that particular lecture fell in the in the class. So it was always kind of a emotional lecture, at least for me, but it was also for her. But it was delightful to have her in class. Prior to that, I'd done a lot of work on Celilo Falls and the Dallas Dam because I wrote my dissertation on the inundation of Celilo Falls and how the federal government negotiated with the four treaty tribes before that happened. Um, I knew a lot about her grandmother. And when she walked into my classroom, I was starting a project that was a biography of her grandmother in part. And I'd done a whole bunch of work collecting materials from archives. I had a couple of oral histories with Flora Thompson and was doing a lot of research on her at that point. And one of the things that Linda did is she asked me, she came up after class one day and she said, oh, would you, I thought you might be interested in this oral history. And she had an oral history I'd never seen before, didn't, didn't know existed. And she had stories that she was willing to tell me. I didn't interview her. I don't think she wanted to be interviewed at that point. You know, I was kind of untested to her, but Eventually, she told me some some really wonderful stories about uh, her grandmother, Flora Thompson, and Martha McEwen, who was the other person that I was writing about. And the book is dedicated to Flora, and who raised you and played a big you know, role in passing along her knowledge. What are some of the most important lessons she taught you, do you think? Well, you know, I always feel like grandma's in me, you know, her spirit. And so I figured, well, when that spirit trying to tell me something, I guess I better share it, you know. And grandma always felt that, you know, the world's going to change. You're not going to like it, but you're going to have to do what you can to be who you are. Just be me. And she says, life, life is going to change. and. She felt education was very important, and so I figured, well, if I'm going to, if I'm named after Grandma, then I got to do what she was, you know, advocate. She dedicated most of her life to our salmon after Grandpa died. She always fought for our way of life, and so when before she passed, it kind of like handed it down to me. That's probably why I was named after her. And so I figured, well, Lamush means little flower. So I figured it must be part of the river part, you know. So I just always feel like this was important. And I think to share the story to the hungry students, I wanted to feed that. <laughs> Thank you.
My Name is Lamush is Linda Mianis's first book in her own words, but it's not the first book about her. In 1956, Oregon author Martha McEwen wrote a book called Linda's Indian Home. Dr. Katie Barber tells us more. She was already a published author who had published a couple of books that were very, very popular through a national trade press that told her when she said, I want to write about Native people, that Native people didn't sell. And so she turned to this local press and decided to write a children's book. I'm not sure why, except that she was a teacher and perhaps she was looking for a way to bring those stories into her classroom and as a way to offer those stories to other teachers as well. She worked with her husband, uh, Martha McEwen worked with her husband, Archie, who was a photographer, and he took photographs of people at Celilo with the permission of the Thompsons of Flora and Tommy Thompson, who, of course, were the grandparents for Linda. And Linda was an infant at the time. And one of the things that Martha McEwen did was she centered the story of Celilo Village around Linda and centered what were essentially, I think, teachings around Linda's experiences. And so there are a number of black and white photographs of Linda as a very small child and a number of photographs of Flora Thompson and Tommy Thompson, the Georges, other people who lived at Celilo and were relatives of Linda caring for her and teaching her things, a sort of a slice of life at Celilo. But it's a story about the real life history of a historical site called Celilo Falls. And a friend of grandma's decided they wanted to write a book about Linda. Indian home and about the people that lived along Columbia River and that lived down there at Celilo, which was a very, very beautiful place to be. But now that it's gone, we have nothing but memories of it. I just kind of remember that I had to dress up in my buckskin dress and grab, I asked grandma, why do I have to, we're not even at powwow. Well, in those days it wasn't called powwow, we used to call it war dance. And I go, I have to dress up, we're not at war dance. He said, well, we're gonna take pictures and we're gonna do a book about you growing up and you need to smile and be proud of who you are and where you come from. So I've been doing that and I am very proud. So she was a really nice lady, and she was willing to let me know that, you know, we were doing a story about me being a baby. And so I had to go with it. <laughs> so I appreciate that, though. I'm glad that she did do this, her and Grandma. Yeah, Flora was really involved, too, wasn't she? Yes, she was. She was one of the ones that really wanted to let people know you know, the story of who we are, because she knew that when they flooded Celilo, that they were going to try and take our way of life. But it never happened. I mean, we still practice what we do. And I'm sure Grandma was more of an advocate. You know, she was more of a talker. She knew more about rights, you know, our fishing rights and knew about our salmon. And... Grandpa would always tell her what to say because she had that voice that, that needed to be heard. So, 
I'm very grateful that Grandma taught me a lot about how to take up for myself when I can. <laughs> In your intro to one of your books, you talk about finding Glinda's Indian home in a bookstore when you were a kid. Could you maybe talk a bit about that? My parents drove my brother and I out to the Columbia Gorge. We lived in Portland, so that was a trip that we often took for fun. And I think we were probably in Hood River, although I don't remember exactly. And we went into a bookstore and we're looking around. And my mom said, well, you know, whatever book you want, we can buy for you. So that was a pretty special treat. That's one of my favorite things to do is to go to a bookstore, if not a library, and get a book. And I picked out Linda's Indian Home. And my mom bought it for me. And I went home and I read it. And it was a special book. It was a very special book. I was probably 10 or so at the time. I don't remember exactly. And then I kind of lost track of it. I probably gave it away at some point as I was, you know, becoming more mature in my reading habits. And when I was in graduate school, I decided that I wanted to write about Celilo Falls and was collecting materials on Celilo Falls, all sorts of things, anything I could find I was getting and ran across Linda's Indian home. And it immediately brought back all of these memories that I didn't you know that were below the surface. And it was so exciting for me to think about the fact that when I was just a little kid, I'd read about Celilo and knew something about its inundation from a very early age. You're listening to Confluence Radio, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River System. Listening to the falls was a great big roar. And the mist in my face, it was like I didn't have to wash my face. I could just feel that mist because it was so powerful. And then the smell of the falls was that you could smell the salmon, you know, and smell that freshness and also, you know, the saltiness of it, you know, and feeling it was like wouldn't even have to take a dip in the water because that was just how powerful it was feeling was just like fresh, you know, just like taking a dip, you know, or like taking a shower, you know, it, that's just the way it was for me, even though it was, we had to follow protocol of not being down there because, because of being so young, you know, but just, being down there to seeing how it was for the fishermen, like my dad and my uncle's grandpa being down there, just seeing all of them being down there, how it was a, a fight to get that sustenance. 
and it was always important for our people because it's um, a family tradition and it's always been salmon or what do you call it like traditional foods that I share you know it's because it was always given to us so we always took what was given to us and share so how they how they describe it is you know our foods we take care of them it takes care of us so we have to respect the way of life that was given to us yeah um, I was trying to teach that to to my grandkids and share that with people to know that this is who we are and this is what we always will be. But even with all the struggles and everything that we go through, we, we manage to survive no matter what's in front of us, like me, <laughs> you know, so. But salmon is very important and it's part of our way of life. And we still continue to fish even though it's, we didn't have as much as we did back in the day before the dam. I remember one time, uh, Grandma got me out of Christie School, which is a Catholic school in Merrillhurst in Lake Oswego, and she came after me to tell me that you know we need our pictures taken because they were going to take something away that they're not supposed to, but they did, and so that was. She, she said that, well, they're going to take our way of life, our salmon, our water, our dam, I mean, our dam, our falls away. And, you know, she was talking to me in Indian to see if I remembered how to speak, you know, how to understand. And so, you know, I thought, well, why do they want to take, take our falls away? You know, she says, well, progress. I said, oh. You know, so that was disappointing, but Grandpa was hurt from it, but she was telling them, well, we need to take our pictures, take, have our pictures taken before anything else, before they, you know, take our, our livelihood. That's what she called it, our livelihood away from us. So, and that's so she had us dress up and, Grandpa, he didn't like putting on his his regalia because it was so hot with all the buckskin on. But that headdress was heavy, so. But it was something she wanted us to do. So I, I was really honored when Linda asked me to be part of this book project and excited about it, really excited that her stories would be told. By that point, I'd already done some interviewing and had listened to oral history interviews that had been conducted with her. So it was really clear that she had a lot to say and that she said it beautifully. So we spent some time thinking about how to take those oral histories, conduct more, and then put it into text, which of course is always such a critical, it's critical work for an oral historian when you put it into uh, text. So I remember the first time I took one of her stories and I thought I would try to write out a vignette based on it. 
and it felt so odd. <laughs> and I was really resistant to it. It took me a while to kind of settle in and feel okay about it. And the way that I felt okay about it was I didn't, I knew she would see it. And if it didn't work, it was a failed experiment and we could move on and figure something else out. But I really was quite worried about imposing my own sort of academic understanding or language or my own perceptions and assumptions onto her, onto her experiences. I think in a lot of ways, that's good to feel anxious about that. And that anxiety stayed with me even though it lessened while we continued to work. And Linda was always really clear with us about what she liked, what she didn't like, what worked, what didn't work. So that was really good. I, I feel like we had a very good partnership in that and that it was really clear that my role was like supporting, right? So that was, it's been really a tremendous experience. It's really been unique. And I think thinking about that makes me wonder too about like the historiography sort of of these stories where they're written about someone or like the told to narratives that are less collaborative or the ethnographic research than something like this, which is an entirely different process. Linda's Indian Home, which again was mm -hmm. published in the 1950s, was really an effort by Martha McEwen to do something similar to what we're doing, but she didn't have the same tools, didn't have the same kinds of examples that would prop up in the intervening years. So in that example, what she was doing is she was listening and writing down the stories that Tommy Thompson and Flora Thompson were telling her and other people in the community were telling her. There are pictures of her taking notes with people who are surrounding her, talking to her about things. And then she would write those notes up, but she would create a narrative based on those notes. And then read everything to Tommy Thompson, who she said she never published anything without his thumbprint, which was his approval. Like, yes, that's that's the right way to put this. So there was that kind of back and forth. In the 1950s, I think that was really unusual. It was really important to me to have Linda initiate the project, that she wanted to do it, and for her to indicate who she wanted to be a part of it with her. And then there are lots of other ways that that process has changed, right? So even just going back and forth and making sure that whatever was being decided was being decided by Linda, I could go off and I could create a vignette, but that vignette wasn't going to go into the book unless it was the vignette that Linda wanted. Same with the, the images, same with the captions at every step of the way. And then I think the biggest piece of this is that Linda is the author of the book. So it's not, you know, Martha McEwen was the author of Linda's Indian Home, but maybe she wasn't. And Linda's the author of her book. Linda is the recipient of the royalties even though Linda's Indian Home was about Linda and about the Thompsons and was a really sympathetic treatment of that family in that time, those royalties were not going back to the families at Salilo, 
whose stories were being represented in that text. They spent a lot of quality time together, you know, about this book, you know, like what we went through, they went through, and Grandma would share stories with Martha about her growing up. And so she went, we wanted to share our stories to let people know that we are here. We still will always be here. We've never been gone. We've never left. We still exist. So I was surprised at one time this little girl, <clears throat> when I was doing a presentation down in Hood River, and there was 80 students, and she come over and told me she's, she didn't know we still existed. And I says, yeah, we've always been here. We've never left. We never will. And so she asked me, can I get a hug? Because I reminded her of her grandmother, so I gave her a hug. And she says, thank you. I'll let my family know you guys are still here, even though they were migrant workers from Odell. So that made me feel good that I could be of service to someone, a different ethnic group, to share that we are still here. That made me feel good to give her that hug. So I'm glad that she appreciated that. <laughs> I'm sure she did. <laughs> Yeah, so I always feel that this needs to be told, you know, because what do our future generations, they're, we're kind of losing them to this t technology, you know. I mean, I appreciate the technology, but sometimes when powwows or events come up, that's where our, people, our younger generations needs to be to learn to pass this on when we're gone to share our history, to share our stories, to share who we are. We could trip along the Columbia River, enjoy our river, enjoy nature, enjoy the view. I mean, you know, there's, I think just looking at the rocks and the water, you know, there's a history in it itself. You've been listening to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. Thank you to author and elder Linda Mianis and Dr. Katie Barber and our interviewer, Confluence Digital Content Manager, Lily Hart. Thanks to you for listening to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. To find out more about Confluence, our five completed sites along the Columbia River system, and our education programs, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. There, you can also buy your own copy of Linda Mianis's My Name is Lamush. Go to confluenceproject.org slash confluence shop. Proceeds go directly to support work like this. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit with the mission to connect people with the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system through indigenous voices. And we can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org.